Don't fight the Fed, or so they say. But what if I told you that the stock market rally despite rising rates is a symptom of something bigger? Welcome to another episode of the Futures Radio Show podcast. Today we're talking with the chief economist at CME Group, Blue Putnam, to untangle the web of Federal Reserve policies and how they shape the market. We're going back to 2022 when the Fed finally took inflation seriously. We'll look at how this decision made big tech stocks plummet, but we won't stop at 2022. We're moving forward to 2023, a year when stocks surprisingly, to some, rallied, even though the Fed was still raising interest rates. And there's even more. We'll examine market sentiment, how the market's mood, moving away from the fear of a coming recession, can boost stocks. And no matter what the Fed is doing, and there's even more, we'll examine market sentiment, how the market's mood moving away from the fear of a coming recession can boost stocks no matter what the Fed is doing. Interested? We've got all this and more coming up. So stay tuned for an exciting ride through the world of finance. Today's podcast is brought to you by CME Group. Whatever the obstacles, CME Group provides the tools that global market participants need to manage risk and capture opportunities. With 24-hour access to futures, options, cash, and OTC products across all major asset classes, you can drive your trading strategy forward with confidence and precision. CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. Blue, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you here today, Blue. Something that's been coming up in pretty much every one of my Futures Radio Show podcasts is, Anthony, I was told, don't fight the Fed. When rates are going up, the market can't go higher. And here we are. We have a you know one of the biggest rallies in equities that we've had in many years. Uh, let's start off with what is the meaning of the phrase, don't fight the Fed? Well, you know, when the Fed is changing policies, going up or down, you know, if, if interest rates are going down, the Fed has your backs. If the Fed's raising rates, you're supposed to be a little more worried. But it's the focus should be on when the change occurs. When did this change occur and why is this time different? I'm not sure this time is all that different, but the change occurred in 2022. That's when the Federal Reserve realized inflation was a serious problem. That's when they started raising rates. And, you know, most of the tech, the big tech stocks lost 60% of their value from peak to trough in 2022. So that's when you got the reaction. And it was a huge reaction, and certainly in the growth heavy NASDAQ type stocks. Um, 2023 is very different. Uh, the, the Fed is still raising rates, or at least it, you know, has been. Uh, and like you say, equities have rallied. So if you're, uh, to, to set, you know, presents a little bit of a conundrum, but we have a we had a big change in sentiment in the last three or four months. Uh, there was a large group of economists, I would say uh, 80, 90 percent, that were forecasting recessions at the end of 2022 or early 2023. And I'm happy to say I was not in that camp. But uh, what's happened is that the, the no recession uh, sentiment has taken over, and that's very good for equities, regardless of what the Fed's doing. So I want to go back to the timing of when the Fed, when things changed. We talked about it, the timing of that and started raising rates. 
what you're saying is is that it's funny as a trader we always talk about the timing is all that really matters <laughs> right you know you could be you could be right in in what ultimately will happen and wrong in timing which means you're wrong but what you're saying is because the market had such a big reaction knowing that we were going to get into QT that the market had done all of its sell off anticipating this type of tightening is that why the market has really digested it early and has moved past it quicker? A little bit. So when interest rates go up, equities need to be, in fact, all assets need to factor in now that you're going to discount future earnings at a higher rate. So if you're a high growth stock with a lot of your earnings into the future, you're going to get hit pretty hard when interest rates go up or when you think they're going up. And, and, you know, that really was what happened in 2022. Now, most of us, and this I do include myself in this camp, when, when rates started going up, we didn't think they would go to five and a half. <laughs> we thought they'd go to three and a half, and then we thought four, and then we kind of ratcheted up over the course of the year. Uh, so you had to reprice your equities. But once equities, houses, bonds have been repriced, then you're starting to look for the next shift in sentiment. Uh, so, so I would argue that 2022 really encapsulated the don't fight the Fed. 2023 has been much more about changes in sentiment that have occurred. And by the way, I mentioned the big one is that we have a no recession scenario now on the table as a consensus. But I think a lot of us uh, didn't fully uh, understand the resilience of the economy, been more resilient than we thought. And then I think a lot of people underestimated the uh, or didn't properly gauge how interest rates actually impact the economy and how that's changed over time. You know, back in the 50s, 60s and 70s, when my favorite car was a 57 Chevy or something like that, and it had fins, uh, you could only get a 30 year mortgage. Uh, you couldn't hedge your interest rate risk because there were no interest rate futures. Uh, you know, there were, the world today, there are plenty of, you know, you can hedge every point on the yield curve with interest rate futures. Uh, we're driving electric vehicles. Uh, you know, we've given up the gas guzzlers. Uh, there's 30-year mortgage, 10-year, 15-year floating rate. You got so many choices. So back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, those, that mindset that raise interest rates sink the economy you really shouldn't have that mindset today. You know, when you raise interest rates, sure, it's a drag on the economy and maybe a little bit of a drag on investment activity and things, but mainly it reprices assets. It doesn't necessarily sink the economy. And that's what we found out, uh, you know, in 2023 is that the economy is a whole lot less interest rate sensitive than a lot of people thought. I want to stay on this thought even and dig in even more when we talk about liquidity, because everybody was saying that not everybody, I should <laughs> clarify that there's been a lot of people actually been on my show that, that said counter to this argument, but a lot of macro experts were saying that starts tightening. It's going to drain liquidity. Stocks just can't go higher. Explain that also how the markets overlook that. You know, liquidity to me is one of the most misused words around. Uh, because it means something different to everybody. 
you know, if you're a trader, liquidity means, well, how many ticks do I have to pay to get things done? Exactly. <laughs> you know, but when people are talking about liquidity and interest rates, they're really talking about how people are going to use their cash and whether they're going to invest it or not and things like that. Um, and then, you know, some people talk about liquidity in terms of the bond market, and that's back to the trader mentality. But, you know, in the, the over-the-counter tre treasury bonds have had some liquidity issues in terms of spreads and getting trades done, but the futures markets have not. Futures markets have been very resilient through all of this. So I, I think I think that when people throw around the word liquidity, it, it it's more likely to confuse the issue than help clarify. Um, well, thank you for clarifying that. And you're <laughs> right. It's funny for me when I first started hearing this years ago about liquidity, I'm looking at the trade book and I'm going, man, there's never been <laughs> this much liquidity in the trade book before when I'm looking at S&P or 10 year. And exactly. so my mind is obviously from a different place. You know, I, I think yeah, one more thing on liquidity. So I also think there was some misunderstanding about QE and QT. So quantitative easing, the Fed's buying treasuries, buying mortgages. And um, quantitative tightening, QT, the Fed's not really selling. It's allowing its portfolio to run off as it matures. So it doesn't have anything. It's an asymmetric impact is what I'm trying to say. When the Fed's actively buying, they're distorting the price discovery process intentionally because they want, they want bond yields lower. Um, but but QT, when you're just doing it passively by letting your portfolio, you know, as things mature, you just don't replace them. Uh, that doesn't have anything like the same impact. Now, if the Fed were actually selling, you know, $100 billion of 10-year treasuries, every that would have an impact. But that's not what they're doing. They're just passively letting their portfolio shrink. So I think the people that like said, well, this is what happened with QE. It'll be the opposite with QT. They didn't really understand the differences of what the how the Fed was treating it. Oh, absolutely. And I guess I want to ask the question: why do people even say don't fight the Fed then? <laughs> well, we we say it because it resonates with people. And you may not want to fight the Fed, but you certainly have to pay attention to everything they're doing because they do change the uh well, they change the value of short-term money. Um, their impact on longer-term money, you know, 10-year, 20, 30-year treasuries is much less because there you've got, uh, well, where, how fast is the economy going to grow? What's inflation going to do longer run? A lot of things like that come into play. But since you have to watch the Fed pretty carefully on the short-term, uh, that phrase is not going to leave us. Let's talk about what the Fed has done to this point, do you think they're right in what they've done? Oh, I try not to make value judgments about that. And I'll tell you why. Um, whenever I make a value judgment, it, it kind of biases my forecast. And, and I really just want to get things right. And so in this case, you know, I'm trying to figure out where the Fed's going to go. But I don't I actually don't think it helps a forecaster to tell the Fed what to do or maybe you made a mistake or not. So I, uh, I'm i I'm pretty religious about staying out of that debate. I might no, get I, into it like 10 years from now when I do some academic research. <laughs> but, you know, in the spot, you know, they they got a committee. They're, they're making some tough decisions. I don't want to say they're right or wrong. 
uh, with what they're doing. I can tell you that I don't think a quarter point one way or the other makes any difference. Uh, you know, it makes a difference to me if you have 4% or 5 and it will make a difference if they get into the sixes. But, you know, the, these very small incremental moves don't change my forecasts. No, I get that. I mean, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback. Uh, we all know that. Uh, let's change the question then a little bit. What are some of the examples of times when you've noticed that the Fed has made mistakes? Well, it's not quite call. I still want to don't want to use the word mistake, but I think we have learned a lot over the last 10 or 20 years about what works a certain way and doesn't work. For instance, zero rates and quantitative easing turned out to raise asset prices, but it really didn't do much at all for the real economy or for inflation. You know, back in from 2010 to 2018, they wanted to get inflation up. You know, the Fed was even talking about using some kind of averaging target so they could overshoot for a while. You know, as soon as they overshot, they didn't want to do that anymore. But, uh, you know, we I think we learned that the influence of the Fed is much more concentrated on asset prices than it is on the real economy. And, uh, you know, that's that's a, when you start to digest that, that means the Fed has a lot less power over the real economy than maybe the Fed and others thought they had. So that's a little sobering to some extent. Let's talk about what Fed, uh, CME's FedWatch tool is saying right now. And really, I looked at it not too long before we came on today's call. And it's amazing how much has changed in the last couple of months. And I've noticed the stock market really has not changed much of its tone for the year at all. Uh, if you go back, well, you correct me if I'm wrong, Blue, a few months ago, uh, you were looking at 100 to 150 basis points cut uh, going into the end of this year into early next year, somewhere around that ballpark, right? Recently, I've looked at it. It looks as though we're going to be right where we are right now, give or take a quarter point uh, lower, it's suggesting, by first quarter of next year. That's a big difference. Yes, and that's the... Uh... That's taking the recession out of the base case and putting in slower growth, but positive growth as your base case for the economy. So if you if you don't think the economy is going to have a recession, uh, you're going to have a higher 10 year bond yield. So instead of sitting at 370, 380 on the 10 year, we're a little bit over four. That's the recession coming out of the forecast. Uh, the sun, Also, Jay Powell and the Fed have told us time and time again, they're going to keep rates elevated for longer than you think. And, uh, you know, the reason the markets thought they might have to cut was that recession view. So once you take the recession out, uh, you realize the Fed can just sit right here where it is or a quarter point higher or whatever for the rest of the year if they want to. They are data dependent, you know, so yeah. if the data changes, they're going to change. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing I will say about this Fed is they've really stick, they've really stayed true to that right throughout. They have not really ventured off too much. I mean, you have this look, maybe, am I wrong on this? No, the, um, the messaging from the Fed, I think, was not particularly clear other than they were going to raise rates from March of 2022 till around November. But that November 2022 Fed meeting, Jay Powell really got his messaging very straight about it elevated longer, higher than you think for longer, things like that. I will tell you that a data-dependent Fed 
uh, is going to get some pretty interesting data to digest in the next six or eight weeks. Um, what the, data points? I was going to say, no. what data points should they be watching? Well, we know they're watching inflation because that's what they're worried about. The, uh, the headline CPI peaked at 9% back in June of 2022, and it was 3% in June of 2023. And I will argue that we're done with the good news. The next, uh, the next couple of CPI prints are going to be higher than the June CPI. Now, uh, what's going on there? There are two things happening, and we're talking about the headline CPI. So the big thing that happened uh, in June of 2022 was energy prices were skyrocketing. And the big thing that happened in July of 2022 is they started coming down. Uh, the opposite is happening now. Um, July of 2023, we already know that gasoline prices were rising. And we already know from a year ago that the comparison to a year ago is harder. So it's... Uh, you know, it's it's not exactly rocket science to think that the C, the headline CPI is going to go up. Maybe, you know, four tenths, five tenths, I don't know, but it's going to go up. The core, however, which is what the Fed, you know, professes to watch, could drop another tenth or so because it doesn't have the energy component in it. And the big problem there has been rents, uh, what we call owner equivalent rent, and that's starting to edge down a little bit. Uh, so anyway, I just uh, the point here is that the CPI data could be confusing uh, over the and we're going to get two CPIs between now and the in the next Fed. So we'll get the, we'll get the uh, in August we get the July CPI and in September we've got the August CPI. So we'll get a lot of information and it will simply confuse the issue. <laughs> well, I'll be watching that CME Fed watch tool to see what the market's pricing in for that September meeting because obviously it could be you know, something that's not anticipated as of right now, based upon well, what you're saying. You should also watch the uh, the October 31, the end of October meeting, because Jerome Powell has made it fairly clear that the Fed is slowing down the pace of increases. So, you know, they were doing 50-75, then they moved to 25. Now they're doing 25-skip, 25-skip. So if you, if you buy into that... Um, September is still a skip month, but uh, the end of October, 1st of November meeting, that's the one that's in play. So watch that Fed watch one, too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Two-part question. First part is you talk about the recession being off the table. Does that mean that a lot of people are now anticipating a soft landing? And really, the second part of that question is explain to everybody what a soft landing would be. Okay. First of all, the word off the table, I wouldn't have used that. I, when, what I'm saying is the recession is no longer the base case. Got it. So, And what does soft landing mean? Soft landing means you don't get quarter one or two quarters of negative GDP. You get positive numbers. They can be slower, but they're going to be positive. Now, so far, they really haven't slowed down. Um, Aside from watching the FedWatch tool, I take a look at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta's uh, e uh, economy now tool and you know they're showing a that you know based on the data that we have today the third quarter is still looking pretty good uh so so that's the first thing soft landing just means no recession now recession let's take a second on this one you don't get recessions just because the fed's raising rates you get a recession because something really serious breaks 
you know, we had the subprime mortgage crisis and, and that really busted everything up in 2008. Uh, you go back to 1999, uh, 2000, 2001, we had the tech wreck on Wall Street and then we had 9-11 and it was, we still got a pretty mild recession out of that, barely a recession. Didn't even get two quarters of GDP back to back on negative. So, I mean, it, some people wouldn't even say we had one. You go back to... <clears throat> 1989, 1991, that was the SNL crisis. You know, we had 10% Fed funds and we busted the, uh, the high yield bond and the mortgage industry simultaneously. Uh, but something has to break. And we thought maybe back in March that the banking system and regional banks were breaking. But, you know, the, the, the government, the regulators came in with a lot of firepower right away and ring fenced that problem. Uh, so right now we're looking at things. The labor market's not broken. The housing market's actually doing way better than most people predicted. Uh, again, most people's housing models, if you were an economist, don't factor in how many low mortgage rates people are sitting on. You know, if you got a mortgage in the last 10 years, you're probably closer to a 3% 30-year than today's 7%. So what are you going to do? You're not selling your house and paying off that mortgage. So there's a very a small supply of existing homes available. Uh, so, you know, a lot of models just in economists just totally got the housing market wrong. But anyway, we, we, we're a much more resilient economy than a lot of people thought. And so that's also getting factored in now much more than it used to. I want to go back to fighting the Fed a little bit. Thank you for describing what that really means, because I, like I said, I think that some people really didn't understand it. And now that we've got a better understanding of what it means, talk about what the risks are when a trader or investor is fighting the Fed. Well, anytime you fight a central bank, not just the Fed, you're at risk if they change direction, change messaging, or if the economy responds abruptly to what they've done. Uh, in this case, the Fed raised rates, the economy said, huh, we don't care. Asset prices, of course, in 22 did care, equity certainly, bonds. Um, but, you know, now they've stabilized. And, of course, that bonds are, you know, equities are, like you say, they're having a great year. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, when you say don't fight the Fed, things like that, you've really got to be looking at the pace of change. Are you still expecting them to be raising rates as fast as they did in 2022? That's when you shouldn't fight the Fed. But once they slow down, you're much more in the neutral zone. You're not really fighting the Fed. They're not fighting you. They're just stabilizing a new type of monetary policy. And that new monetary policy is they're going to keep Fed funds a little higher than what they think the prevailing long-term inflation rate is. Uh, and and that's, that's not a fight the Fed kind of concept. When is it worth it to fight the Fed? Well, it's worth it when you think something big is going to happen to the economy and the Fed's thinking something different. And... Uh, I wouldn't recommend that strategy, but, uh, you know, but again, I, I don't, to me, there's the, the, the fight the Fed is when the Fed is raising rates rapidly or, or cutting them rapidly, then, then you don't fight the Fed. But when it's, when they're very slow incremental adjustments, a quarter here, skip a meeting there, you're in neutral territory. Uh, and then other factors are really more important. 
talk to the traders and investors out there and ways that they could stay, I would say, most up-to-date informed on what the Fed policies are. <laughs> well, they better look at the FedWatch tool. True. The CME FedWatch tool will tell you what the market participants are thinking the Fed might do. And I think we've talked about it on the show in the past, but, you know, they're they're usually not right. <laughs> but it's just it's the current price of risk management and what you can manage and you can't manage. So that's the first place. The second thing is, even though the Fed's focused on inflation, they like to talk about labor markets as being the issue, wages, growth and things like that, because they feel like wage growth can get embedded in services. And then that. So, you know, I watch the uh, weekly unemployment uh, claims data uh, and it's showing us a continually a very robust jobs market. Um, but you do have to remember that jobs data is always lagged. So if you want to drive a car looking only through the rearview mirror, you go for it. But uh, just remember that that job state is, is in the past. So it's, it's not one of the early indicators. What are some tools that investors can use to protect themselves from Fed policies? Well, <laughs> so, you know, the Fed funds futures and SOFR futures, secured overnight funding rate futures, um, those are your good short-term tools for uh managing your risk relative to the Fed. Um, the longer term tools, you know, the 10 year bond future, the ultra 10 futures, those are those are good instruments for looking out longer term. And I cite the 10 year because a lot of people's interest rate risk or company interest rate risk is somehow tied to mortgages or other kind of long term borrowing. And those are benchmarked off the 10 year. So those are really the two important points. If you're looking at the short term, think about Fed funds futures or SOFR. Looking at the long term, think about the tenure. But you also, when you don't know what's going to happen, but you think something big could happen either direction, uh, then options come into play. Uh, and to me, options, uh, you know, options are pricing volatility and they're a little more unidirectional. They don't care about direction as much. Uh, you know, a futures contract is all about direction. So options uh, allow you some additional hedging uh, or risk management capability in terms of, well, maybe it could go up or down. You can use an option straddle for something like that if you think the price moves could be big. So a lot of tools at your disposal. Explain to everybody what SOFR futures are, because I would bet that a lot of traders out there maybe aren't familiar with SOFR, even though I've done a bunch of shows with everybody on SOFR futures. <laughs> well, the most successful interest rate futures contract ever was the LIBOR contract, which was the uh, interest rate on uh, dollars held outside the United States. It, you know, started back in 1981 and just was an incredible contract. Uh, that's been replaced by SOFR. Secured overnight financing rate or funding rate, financing rate. Uh, so the SOFR contract is basically replaced LIBOR. It's taking you through what could happen to short-term interest rates. So and those contracts are quarterly and extend out uh, many, many years. So you've got all kinds of choices as to how you want to uh, structure your risk management with, with those contracts. But it's just basically short-term rates. The... Uh, Federal funds futures are specifically about Fed funds, but the difference between 
you know, if SOFR rates are going up, Fed funds are going up and vice versa. They're very tightly uh, linked to each other. Blue, thank you so much for this conversation today. I can't tell you how many questions you answered for myself and I'm sure for much of the audience. I want to remind everybody, you can go to cmegroup.com, check out that FedWatch tool, which I'm watching pretty much every day. It doesn't change every day, really, but there's a lot of times after a CPI number or after a data point, you want to go and check that out because that does set the tone you know, for market sentiment and what's going to be happening with interest rates. And of course, Blue, you do a ton of stuff on CME Group, whether it's videos or writings. Is there anything specific that you want to a plug for people to go and check out at CME's website that you in particular are doing? Well, you know, I think uh, I'm not doing it directly, but one of the things I'm watching a lot more closely are volatility measures. Uh, some of them got really low and they're creeping back up, but we use something called CVOL. It's a CME Group's volatility measure, but uh, you can find that on our website as well. But I think tracking volatility at the same time you're looking at various sentiment indicators is a is a pretty good thing to do. Yeah, and what's great about CVOL is it's available for pretty much all of the CME Group's contracts. Am I wrong, Blue? Is it for no, every it's certainly available for bonds, which is the, what we're talking about today. And, and that's pretty, you know, and it's available for the commodities as well. Yeah, it's a great tool that you're not going to get on your traditional charting platform where you can go and see what's happening uh, inside uh, the volatility with these contracts. Blue, once again, it's great to see you, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me today on Futures Radio Show. Well, thank you. It's always fun. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Never miss an episode. Go to anthonycrudelli.com and get on our email list for show notifications and for free content that is exclusively for subscribers. Also on anthonycrudelli.com, you will find tons of videos and education on trading futures, options, and crypto. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Opinions expressed are solely my own and my guests, and they do not express the views or opinions of my sponsors. Future's radio show is produced by Crudelli Productions.